please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that this is your day. We thank you that this is your house. We thank you that you've brought your people here. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Everything in our lives and who we are begins and ends with you. We thank you that you are our everything. I pray that anything we came in uh, this, into this building with today, fears or anxieties or disappointments or heartbreak or sin, whatever it is, I pray that we would lay it down at your feet, that there would be nothing between us and you, and that you would fill us, fill us with your word, fill us with the movement of your spirit, that your word would go forth and our lives would be changed. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The men here will understand what I'm going to be talking about uh, here. <laughs> we like to think we have things all figured out when it comes to fixing something in our, in our houses, right? We take a look at a situation, we adjust our belts, we look at it and we say, eh, piece of cake, I can take care of that right here. Right here, right now. Then what happens? Before we know it, we've actually created a bigger mess than when we first started. Tools we never intended to use when we first started are all over the place. And somehow there's a hole in the wall that wasn't there before. I don't know where that came from, but somehow there's a hole in the wall. And then we receive the joy of our wives' faces when they come into the room and see our masterpiece. Say, hey, check this out. <laughs> I, I hear some, some laughter here. Okay, the women here are, are sitting here smiling and looking right at their husbands. And the men are just sitting here like this. You're not, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. For a lot of us, we think we've got God all figured out. I mean, if salvation was so easy to understand that it's possible for a child to believe in Jesus, then what's so hard to understand about God? He's just the big guy upstairs, right? Or maybe we've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and we've gone to church every Sunday, and, and, and we've heard umpteen million sermons, and we've attended Sunday school and Bible study, and we've gone through all the attributes of God, the way he's worked in the Bible, and what Jesus has done for us. And after a while, our faith starts to get routine. It starts to get dull. It starts to get boring. And as we continue to drudge through this pandemic, and it's the middle of winter, and we're kind of in the doldrums right now, that may have seeped its way into our spiritual life. We see reading the Bible as boring, so we stop doing it. We see praying to God as not worth spending time on, so we stop doing that. We see coming to church and fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters and experiencing the Holy Spirit's movement as too much work. So we stop doing that. As we continue to look forward into a new year, I want to inspire us, and I want to encourage us, and I want to rejuvenate us. I want God's word to revitalize us and set us on fire for living for him as we walk further and further into 2021. 
Today we're going to be taking a look at an experience that three of Jesus' closest disciples who have been following Jesus for at least a year now have observed what he's saying and doing, and they think they kind of know what's going on now. They, th they think they, get, they got it all figured out. And then Jesus pulls something new on them. Jesus still has a mind-blowing surprise for them. A major part of our life with Jesus is always keeping a sense of awe and mystery in our view of our connection with the Heavenly Father and therefore not allowing our Christian walk to become dry and lifeless. So if you brought your Bible with you today, uh, that, yeah, that's the wrong, uh, I don't know if I have the wrong title up there or not. But if you brought your Bible with you, please uh, turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we're not in Genesis 16 today. We're in Luke chapter 9, uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 28. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Uh, please also turn to Luke chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 28, or you can look this up on your favorite Bible app. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 28, we read, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. We start out by reading about eight days after these sayings. Well, what, what are these sayings? What, what was he talking about? What was Jesus talking about? Well, if we look before this passage and the verses leading up to it, starting in verse 18, and you can kind of skim over these, Jesus is very candid about the role that suffering will play in his ministry, as well as in the lives of those who choose to follow him. This theme of suffering will be key in understanding the passage that we have this morning. One thing to note here, Jesus always promised suffering for being a follower of him in this world. He always promised suffering for, for being a follower of him in this world. Yet a lot of us think that suffering is only for those highly spiritual people and not for me, right? We think, I'm a normal person. I'm, like, I'm not like this highly spiritual person over here. I like feeling good. I like having people like me. I like buying things that make me feel good. But that's not what God shows us is inextricably connected to a life following Jesus. What is inextricably connected to a life following Jesus? Suffering. Can't get away from it. Do we embrace a life of suffering, knowing that it is what is prescribed by God for a Christ follower by Jesus himself, focusing on his kingdom? Not focusing on anything else in this world. Not building up things for ourselves in this world. Focusing on his kingdom and longing for our future home. Not putting any stock in this earth. Longing for our future home. So verse 28 tells us that Jesus takes his inner circle of disciples, the same ones who saw him a little while ago raise Jairus' daughter from the dead up to a mountain to pray. Now, I know that these guys knew that this was something Jesus did, that he, he usually went off by himself to pray. So at this moment, other than being honored that Jesus insisted on bringing them with him to pray, I doubt that Peter, James, and John suspected that anything more than just praying was going to happen. God may reveal to you what he's going to do in your life. He may reveal that to you. But more often than not, he answers a prayer or works a miracle 
How? Out of nowhere, right? When you least expect it. You may feel in a rut even now. Praying and praying and nothing seems to change until all of a sudden, the pieces start falling into place. The danger in a situation when it seems like God is not doing anything is trying to force something to happen, and that's what we talked about last week, right? The danger in a situation when it seems like God is not doing anything is taking upon ourselves and trying to force something to happen. We need to always be in tune with God, waiting when he's not doing something in a certain area, and moving at full speed when he starts fitting the pieces together. See, there are two extremes when it comes to not following God's timing. The first is what we talked about last week, that of thinking God's not working and trying to force something to happen the only way that we see something possibly happening. That's the first extreme of, of disobedience, of not following God. The second is on the other side of the spectrum. We, see, we start seeing the pieces falling into place, and then we refuse to move. We see God moving, and his actions are shouting, Now! Now is my perfect timing! Move it! And we think, eh, life is good now. Why would I want to ruin it? Why would I want to complicate things? I just don't want to. Both responses are disobedience to God. Both responses are not following him, and both responses are a lack of faith. We always need to remember whom we serve. We don't serve some magical power that we can bend to our every whim. Who we serve is the creator and the sustainer of the universe who breathed life into us. It's not the other way around. It's not we who created this concept of God that we can bend to our, to our every whim. His will and his plan transcend and trumps any plan or aspirations we have. Sorry to break it to you. His will and his plan transcend and trump any plan or aspirations we have. More on that in a little bit. Next, Luke describes what happens, verse 29. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. In Luke's description of the transfiguration, that's what's going on right here, Mark uses the term transformed or metamorpho, whereas Luke chooses to use the term heteros or different or other or changed to describe what happened. What Luke wants to do here is Luke wanted to avoid any similarity between what happened to Jesus here during the transfiguration and what pagans were taught about Greek gods and magicians changing their form. And Luke wanted to show that Jesus was still the same man, was still the same figure, but with the glory of God shining through at this point. That's what Luke is trying to convey here. In our passage this morning, we're going to see a lot of parallels between Jesus and Moses. And I don't know if, if we've picked up on these whenever we've read about the transformation, these parallels between Jesus and Moses. Clues that Luke's Hellenistic Jewish readers would not have missed when they read this. 
Therefore, both authors, both Mark and Luke, were trying to convey and draw the similarity with what happened to Moses in Exodus 34, 29. And we read, When Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he was not aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. He was in such close proximity to God that his face was glowing with the glory of God. Not only did Jesus' did Jesus's face radiate the glory of God like Moses, but his clothes did too. Most likely, Jesus did not walk around with newly bleached robes like he was advertising for Tide laundry detergent, like so many paintings and drawings we see him, are, depict him in. Most likely, Jesus wore dirty, dusty clothing like everyone else. So this description, too, of his clothes being bright white brings to memory angelic, heavenly figures not of this world, something different, something changed, something other than this world. As if this change in Jesus' appearance wasn't enough, verse 30, something else happens. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. What's going on here? These guys were dead for a long time before this. Well, not, no, okay, not dead. We'll get to that in a second. Were these guys ghosts coming from the other side to just hang out with Jesus here? What's very interesting in this description is that in Jewish thought, mystery surrounded the end of these two guys' lives. If you think about it, if you go back and take a look at the end of these guys' lives on earth, we read this, Deuteronomy 34 tells us, the Lord buried Moses in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. And Elijah never died a human death. For in 2 Kings 2.11, we read, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire. It drove between the two men, Elijah and Elisha, separating them, and Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven. He didn't actually die a physical death. What's more powerful about it being these two men from Israel's history is this. The significance is that Moses and Elijah represent the beginning and the end of Israel's history. Moses represents the beginning of the nation of Israel with the giving of the Mosaic law, God giving the law to Moses. Elijah represents the end of the story with Malachi giving this prophecy. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Malachi was prophesying well after the actual Elijah was walking on the earth. John the Baptist was connected to the spirit of Elijah and welcoming the Messiah to the world. The appearance of Elijah here then signifies a huge shift in not only Israel's history, but the entire history of the entire world right here. The inauguration of the Messianic age and the subsequent end times. That's what's happening here during this transfiguration. That's what's happening here. That's the significance of both Moses and Elijah showing up here. In addition to their significance, what was the purpose of them being there? Verse 31. 
who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what they're talking to Jesus about. This word departure that's translated into English as both departure and death, depending on the English translation you're reading. This word actually goes much deeper than Jesus simply talking about his death and subsequent departure from earth back to heaven. The word in the Greek that's translated departure is exodus. Does that look familiar to anybody here? Looks like a book of the Bible, doesn't it? It can mean departure, it can mean death, but it can also, in thinking in terms of the Old Testament, it can mean exit. Now this is huge. With this description, Jesus is once again being confirmed as the salvation of Israel. Just as God saved Israel through the departure from slavery in Egypt by way of the Passover, Jesus' death and departure from this world would bring salvation from slavery to sin and death for the entire world by way of being the true Passover lamb. That's the connection being made here. So there's all these points of significance in this experience known as the transfiguration. Next, Peter, James, and John finally see what's going on. Verse 32. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. We see later on that these guys have a problem with staying awake while Jesus is praying. Perhaps it's old news to them already regarding Jesus praying to his Father. Just like how we can get when we read our Bibles and we pray and we go to church. It gets routine. It gets dull, maybe. We lose the significance of what we have with a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Almighty God. In the same way, Peter, James, and John let themselves start to get bored. They let their minds start to wander, and they start thinking about how good sleep would feel right about that. Sound familiar? Maybe some of you are thinking that right now. If you're not off, wake up. All right. All of a sudden, they get a shot of adrenaline when Jesus' body bursts with God's glory, and Moses and Elijah show up out of nowhere. I don't know how the three disciples recognized who Moses and Elijah were because they lived centuries apart, but somehow they recognized who was with Jesus. And that's what leads us to verse 33. And as, they were as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Now, what does Peter mean when he says this? Let's make a tabernacle for you and these two other guys. It's obvious that Peter understood the connections between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. See, Peter, for all the ways that Peter didn't understand what was going on, here, he did actually understand what's going on because of what he says in connection with Jesus bringing in the kingdom of God. What he wants to build are translated, as we read here, tabernacles, or depending on your translation, booths, or what these two things are, are places of worship. He wants to build three different places of worship. There are two possibilities as to what Peter was trying to get at here. 
The first one is that Peter is drawing more of a connection between ancient Israel and Jesus and alluding to the tabernacle Israel would erect to house the presence of God with them. This would mean that Peter is again referencing his belief that Jesus is God incarnate, dwelling among them, God dwelling among his people, just as what the tabernacle represented to the nation of Israel, God's presence dwelling among them in the tabernacle. The second possibility builds on the first, but with more of a messianic prophecy feel to it. Zechariah 14 describes the coming of the kingdom of God to earth in connection with the Jewish festival of the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Old Testament, you may be sitting here and saying, say, what? what in the world are you talking about here? Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. In the Old Testament, there were three required festivals that the Israelite men were to observe, that every Israelite man was to observe. And two out of the three of them have been fulfilled by Jesus by this point. The first, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Passover, was fulfilled when Jesus was crucified at Passover. The second, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was fulfilled uh, at the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The third, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, has not been fulfilled yet because Jesus has not yet returned to earth to fully rule the kingdom of God. That's what the Feast of Booths represents, and that's why it hasn't been fulfilled yet, because Jesus has not returned to earth to fully rule over the earth, to fully rule the kingdom of God. So Peter may have been, in his own misguided way, wanting to do his part in Jesus fulfilling the Festival of Booths. See, he understood what the significance of that was. He understood that by Jesus fulfilling the festival of booths meant that Jesus was ushering in the full kingdom of God. What did Peter want to do here? He wanted to speed the things up a little bit. He wanted to rush into that a little bit. He said, oh my gosh, okay, here's Jesus, here's Moses, here's Elijah. It must be here. Here's the kingdom of God. It's, it's happening. Let's build the, 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 the booths, the tabernacles to fulfill this, and let's get this thing going. Let's get this party started. He wanted to rush into it. But that was the problem with Peter's suggestion. Peter wanted to bring in the kingdom of God right there and then. But Jesus knew that something else needed to happen first before any of that happened. Jesus knew that he must suffer first. And that's what connects us to what we talked about at the beginning of this message. Jesus knew he had to suffer first. And Peter conveniently forgot that aspect of Jesus' ministry. He wanted to rush right into the kingdom of God part. Peter wanted to rush it and skip ahead to Jesus overthrowing the Romans and setting up his earthly kingdom right there and then. He got all caught up in the excitement of what was unfolding before his very eyes and didn't think everything all the way through. He completely forgot about the whole Messiah suffering part. See, we're often misguided when it comes to what we expect of Almighty God a lot of times. We may want to run ahead of God, not being pruned first. We want, and, and then what happens? We experience disastrous conclusions. We're not there yet. We're not ready for it yet. We're not 
grown up enough spiritually for that yet. We may never want, on the opposite side, we may never want to move on. We, may never, we never want to move on what God wants us to do because it would mean what? Suffering for us. It would mean being pruned for us. When a rose bush gets pruned, do you think it enjoys that? Do you think it, it thinks, oh, this feels, I could, I could get used to this, this feels good. No, it hurts. It hurts. Pruning hurts. It's supposed to hurt, but it's what grows us. When you prune a rose bush, that's when it becomes fuller. It grows better. It grows um, more fruitful. And that's how our lives become when God prunes us. And pruning does not feel good, but that's how God grows us. That's why being in tune with the Holy Spirit through reading God's Word, spending time with Him in prayer, and being in His house of worship regularly is so important because it's all about our spiritual growth. Believe it or not, your purpose on this earth is not comfort. It's not to seek your own goals. It's not to seek your own aspirations. It's to be spiritually grown. God tells the church in Ephesus that, and that's what God is telling us today, that God's purpose for us as believers in Jesus is not about us. It's not what we want. It's not what we want to build for ourselves on this earth. It's what God wants for us. And it's God dragging us, kicking and screaming sometimes, into the place that he wants us to be. It's about him changing us and transforming us and molding us into the image of his son. His goal for us, he tells the church in Ephesus, is to measure to the fullness of the entire standard of Christ. Are any of us there yet? Anybody want to venture raising your hand for that? I'd like to see that. No, okay. We are far from that. Amen? But God also tells us in his word that he who started that work in us will be faithful to complete it. He will complete it. We're not there yet. Contrary to popular belief, our life's purpose is not to make a name for ourselves. It's not to get God to do what we want him to do. It's not to chase after things that we think will make us happy or even to lazily coast through life. It's none of that. We have a mission. We have a purpose. We have a mission the great commission to go out into the world and preach the gospel. That verse doesn't just give credence to world missions. It speaks about our own personal worlds, the networks of friends and neighbors and co-workers and family members that only you can reach with the gospel. I can't reach that family member that you have. You can you can tell them about Jesus. And God has set you up in their life to do that. A lot of us want God to just work miracles in our lives and just bring people into his kingdom without us having to suffer, without us having to put in the work, without us actually having to tell people about the truth of Jesus, and without us actually having to live our lives righteously and with the standards by, that God has given to us by obeying God in the face of a mocking 
world. That was Peter's problem. He forgot about the suffering part. And most of the time, that's our problem too. Suffering plays a crucial role in our life of faith. It prunes us. It sharpens us. It deepens and strengthens our faith. The age-old question of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, here is why. Because God wants to grow his children. And he knows the only way to grow us is through suffering. And we can see this in our lives. This is, I'm not speaking into a vacuum here. We can see this in our lives. When things are going well, when we have no problems, what starts to suffer? Our spiritual life. We spend less time with God. We, we stop looking to do the things that he wants us to do. We stop seeking him. We, we stop pouring out our hearts and our lives to him in prayer. We stop wanting to spend time with him and with his children in his house. When things are going well, we, our, our spiritual life suffers. We, we start giving these things up. It's when we're going through these extremely difficult, heart-wrenching times that we grow closer to God, that our life is, that our faith is stretched, that our faith is deepened, that God reveals more and more of who he is, the greatness of who he is, and how deeply he loves us. It's in those times that that's revealed to us. Suffering is how God grows us. And it keeps our focus, suffering keeps our focus on what is truly important in this world. When we're not suffering, when things are going well, where's our focus? On all these other things in our lives. On all the other things that we want or that, that seem good. When we're suffering, it forces us to keep our hearts and our eyes and our minds directly and only focused on God. Right? Just to jog Peter's memory, we have a new development in what happens. Verse 34. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. God knew what was going on. He sees everything that's going on here. He knows what's going on. So he decides to shape up, shake up these guys even more. It's as if he's saying, you think you know what's going on? Well, I'll show you that you have absolutely no clue as to what's actually happening right now. It's unclear as to who goes into this cloud because of the placement of the days here. But most likely it's Jesus, Moses, and Elijah being swallowed up by this cloud. What does the cloud, again, symbolize in the Old Testament? Thank you. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't a hypothetical question. All right. It, again, symbolizes God's presence, right? What led Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness? A pillar of cloud. It, what hovered over the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle? The cloud that represents, represented God's presence. That same cloud shows up again here. Thousands of years later, it shows up again here, and the disciples are overcome with breath, breathtaking awe as they watch all of this unfolding. 
And as, all, as if all, all of what was happening before their eyes wasn't enough, we come to verse 35. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Boy, when God says listen to him, you listen, don't you? Just like at Jesus' baptism, the Heavenly Father enters human time and space with these commendating words for his son. He reiterates that Jesus is his son and the chosen Messiah. But not only that, again, he says, listen to him. Shut up and listen to him. God the Father is drawing yet another comparison between Jesus and Moses and alluding to Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses continued, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. And then what, he, what does he say? Listen to him. That last part is exactly what God reiterates here. Not only is God the Father connecting God the Son to that messianic prophet, but he's saying to the disciples, listen to what my son has been talking about. What was he just talking about with Moses and Elijah? Did you not hear him? Did you conveniently ignore it? Did you for conveniently forget? What was he just talking about to Moses and Elijah? There is going to be suffering. What you wish to happen is not the way it's going to happen. Your master has been saying that just as he is going to the cross, you must pick up your cross daily if you want to follow him and receive his inheritance. We must also be reminded of this crucial truth. Paul tells the Roman church that if we want to partake in the same inheritance as Jesus, we must also partake in the same suffering as Jesus. The same misunderstanding, the same pain, the same suffering, and guess what? The same spiritual battles that Jesus went through. If we're spending our lives trying to run away from all of that and just chasing after earthly comforts, then we're not at all following Jesus. If we simply don't care about any of that, then we need to have a brutally honest conversation with God about our status of salvation in the first place. Lastly, we read in verse 36. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Just to make sure those three disciples got the point, as God the Father is speaking, he pulls away the cloud. Moses and Elijah, they're, they're, they're in that cloud. So that when he's done speaking, the only one standing before Peter, James, and John is Jesus. All of that gets pulled away and is revealing only one person, and that's Jesus. There's a dark cloud that envelops Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. A thunderous voice that verifies Jesus as the messianic king who will rule the world, but not yet. And then to point a powerful period at the end of all of this, that gets pulled away and all that remains is Jesus. And what else? Silence. Jesus and silence. 
quite understandably, these three disciples we read in verse 36 are left speechless because of how much awe they were in. My question for all of this, my question for all of us here is this. Are we left speechless by God anymore? Are we awed by God anymore? I'm not just talking about when he works an unexplainable miracle in your life or answers your prayer in a crazy way. I'm talking about on an everyday basis. Do we still... Are we still awed by God on an everyday basis? The root of all of this is are we taking for granted what Jesus has done for us? That's what flows into being born by our faith. That's what flows into it being dull, is that we're taking for granted what Jesus has done for us. Not only has he taken away your sin, thus removing your spiritual dirtiness before Almighty God. But the veil in the temple was torn in two, exposing the world for the first time to the Holy of Holies, that part where Yahweh was to reside. Are we filled with astonishment at who God is, at how the universe was created? and how our human bodies work. At the movement of human history. At even being given the indescribable gift of having a relationship with this God. We as human beings, because and only because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, have a connection opened with Almighty God, the Most High, the ruler of the universe, the creator of time and galaxies and gravity and protons. We can communicate with him whenever we want. We can come with boldness before the throne of God because of what Jesus did for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have the blessing and privilege to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Nobody in the Old Testament had that. We have that gift. Are we taking it for granted? Are we not using it at all? Are we throwing it away? Are we ignoring it? We can come before the very throne of the creator of the universe with boldness only because of what Jesus did for us. How often are we doing that? How often are we filled with astonishment and awe that we even have the gift, the opportunity, the privilege of being able to do that? Because of the work of Christ, we've been given the unbelievable gift of the Holy Spirit. You thought about that? How you have the third person of the Trinity, of Almighty God, God Himself, residing in you, making a home within you, directing you, comforting you, giving you the joy in this dark and broken world. You have that as a gift. It was given to you. How often do we forget about it? How, how often do we take it for granted? How often are we not filled with astonishment and awe that we have the third person of the Trinity, God himself, indwelling us? He intercedes with the Father on our behalf with groans when we have no clue what to even pray for. 
He intercedes for us. Look at everything Jesus has given to us. Are we utilizing and growing and strengthening all of what we've been given? Or are we content to just forget about all that? Be blinded from all of that? Are we content to just chase after and fill ourselves with only what the world has to offer? And let me tell you, it is a weak comparison. It will always leave you empty. Are you satisfied with where your relationship is with God right now? Or do you hunger with starvation, long for with groaning, to have a deeper connection with the Father through Jesus Christ? Are you chasing after that? Are you investing in that? Are you seeking after that with your whole life, with all your heart? Ask him for that. And he will slowly start to reveal more and more of himself to you. He'll start to reveal more and more of what you've been holding on to in this world that you need to let go, that you need to release, that you need to surrender up to him. He'll slowly chip away that which makes the separation between him and you. He'll start to invigorate you. He'll start to stir up a revival deep within you. And he'll drive you into this world to share the riches of his grace with everyone else. Let me ask you a question, church. You want to see a spiritual revival in our church? Thanks, Al. I'm going to ask this question again. Do you want to see a spiritual revival in our church? Do you want to see a spiritual revival in our neighborhood? Do you want to see a spiritual revival in our world? Guess what? Guess where it starts? Right here. If you want to see a spiritual revival in our church, if you want to see a spiritual revival in our neighborhood, in our country, and in our world, guess where it starts? It starts right here. With every single one of us. That's where it must and only starts. Then each, as each of us experience revival inside of ourselves, we focus all of our lives and all of our minds and all of our hearts on God and what he wants us to be doing. And we're in awe and astonished and, and, and just overwhelmed and overcome by who he is. And we start being stirred up and changed and driven and revived and invigorated in our spirits as his Holy Spirit is poured out even more and more in our hearts through the work and power of the Holy Spirit, our church will experience never-before-seen revival. And that will spill out into our neighborhood, our country, and our world. But it has to start here. It has to start with every single one of us seeking that, seeking that revival in our hearts. It starts with what we're praying for. What are we praying for, brothers and sisters? Are we only praying for things for ourselves, for things that we, that we want, or, or things that we wish God would do in our lives? Or are we praying that God would make us into the people that he wants us to be? Are we praying that God would reveal more and more of himself to us? Are we praying for that revival in our own hearts? 
We might say, God, I pray for you for revival for our church or for our country. But we forget where it starts. Are we praying for revival within our own hearts? It's good to pray for a revival in our church and in our country, but we have to be praying for revival in our own hearts because that's where it starts. And for God to reveal more and more of himself to us, pour out his power more and more into us, show more of, of himself to us. What are we praying for? So as we're walking further and further into 2020, I want to ask our, all of us the question, what are we praying for in 2021? What are we praying for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for revival in each and every single one of our hearts, as well as those who will be watching this on the internet later. I pray that you would stir up something within us. I pray that you would take what we've let get complacent and we've let get boring and dull and lifeless, that you would take that and set it ablaze, that you will create such a stirring and an overwhelming drive in us to want more and more of you, to hunger for more and more of you, to want to know not only more about you, but know you more and more. I pray that we would be overwhelmed with this urge and this desire to give up these things we've been holding on to in this world, to give up these things that we've been holding on to within ourselves that we know aren't pleasing to you, that we know are, are, are just weak, that we'd surrender those to you and we'd be overwhelmed with the transformation of the Holy Spirit, that we would see revival in our own hearts as we pray for revival in our hearts and in our church. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.